Welcome to sermons from First Alliance Church, equipping you to become a fully devoted and faithfully engaged disciple of Jesus. Here's today's message. Well, welcome again. My name is Andrew, and I'm so glad you're tracking with us this morning, tuning in online, wherever you're at in the world uh, and on your life journey. We're so glad you're with us. Welcome. This month, if you've been tracking with us, you'll know we've been journeying through chapter 24 of Luke's gospel, where Jesus rises from the dead. We are taking Easter with us because Easter is not just a one-day-a-year kind of thing. It is the central nerve of the Christian faith. And so we're considering that this month. But before we get into the text that Pastor Tim just read for us, I would also like to offer prayer. Will you pray with me? Living God, we believed that you inspired Luke by your Holy Spirit to write the words we have just heard. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and do what only you can do. Illuminate our hearts and minds. Cause the word to come alive to us and to bring us into the reality to which they bear witness in a new and fresh way. Lord, far more than information, we long for transformation. So come and do your work. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. A before and after picture is a great way to see change. It's a great way to see transformation. So some of you, while you're scrolling through Instagram, you'll see before and after pictures of people who have done a diet or done an exercise program or renovated their house. Before and after pictures bring us in and give such a clear picture as to what the change is. In Luke's gospel, in this chapter, Luke gives us a before and an after picture. In verse 18, you'll remember from last week, the disciples are walking the road to Emmaus and they are downcast. They're burdened because Jesus, their leader, their teacher, their beloved friend had just been crucified. But then in today's text, in verse 32, you notice their hearts are burning. A fire has been lit and they rush back. I like to think they ran back to Jerusalem to meet the other disciples and share with them what they've seen. That's a very different before and after picture. They go from having burdened hearts to having burning hearts. So what brought about that transformation That's really what we're going to focus on today. How did they go from having burdened hearts to burning hearts? And and what might that mean for us in our lives? How, How can we go from having burdened hearts to burning hearts? Ignited with passion and faith. We're going to get right into the turning point of the passage. As much as we've been saying how these two disciples are on a journey, on this road to belief, what we see today is that there is a definite turning point where it clicks and everything changes. Check out verse 30 with me. It says this, when he was at table with them, that is Jesus, he, Jesus, took bread gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then it says, their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. 
They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? See, the turning point for these disciples is that their eyes were opened and they recognized Jesus. Before they had seen him, but now they recognized him. There is this all-important matter of our sight. There is the all-important matter of our sight. God is at work revealing himself to people like Jesus was to these disciples. But then there's the matter of us and what we can see, our own eyes. And Luke is talking about more than physical sight. That's clear. I mean, they can see Jesus. They can see a man standing in front of them. They have sight, but they don't have insight. They, they don't see him for who he is. Consider this. Uh, what do you see here? Yeah, you, you see a guitar, right? Probably no different than any other guitar you've seen before. As the owner of the guitar, let me tell you what I see. I see a solid Sitka spruce top with bare claw patterns in the grain. I see a mahogany back and sides. I see this beautiful ebony fretboard. I see almost 30 years of wear and play and the, the subtle patina on the finish from this guitar. I know this guitar was made by Dana Bourgeois, a very famous luthier who is based in Maine. And I know that he put care and attention into every single brace in this guitar. I know how it feels, how the body resonates when I play an E chord. You see, most people, you'll see a guitar, but I see what the guitar is. Just ask any photographer about their camera or any gardener about their garden or any athlete about their sport. The disciples see a man, but they don't know who the man is. There's a difference between sight and insight. So how do we get insight? How do they get insight? Again, in verse 30, he took bread, he gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them. Then it says their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened. The verb opened here is in the passive voice. So here's a little grammar lesson for you. The active voice would be, I opened my eyes or they opened their eyes. The passive voice means it, it happened to them. It means their eyes were opened, meaning the disciples didn't open their own eyes. And here's the point. God did. This is what's often called the divine passive, where the one who is doing the opening, the one who is at work, is God himself. And, and what Luke is telling us in this text is that only God can give us insight. Only God can reveal himself and open our eyes to what he's revealing. It, it's, it's not our accomplishment. It's the accomplishment of God. And so he it's all the glory because it's a gift of grace. God opens our eyes. The bottom line here is that 
these disciples and, and we ourselves move from having burdened hearts to burning hearts when we meet the risen Jesus and he opens our eyes. And it's significant that the the disciples recognize Jesus in the breaking of bread. Did you notice that? That, That's kind of interesting. It was while they were at table, they were having a meal. In fact, they hadn't started having the meal. They were just about to launch in. And, And Jesus did these actions. And did you notice that they invited Jesus in, but who became the host? Jesus. He just stands up, takes the bread, and, and does a, a, a Jesus signature move. I mean, we've seen him do this in Luke's gospel, and this is partly what opens their eyes. They'd seen this before when Jesus fed 5,000 people in chapter 9, that Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them. We've seen this in Luke chapter 22, where Jesus gave them a new Passover, and he took bread gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them. That's partly what opens their eyes. There are these echoes of the meals that Jesus had had with his disciples that they had seen him giving the bread to them. But there's another meal in the Bible being echoed here, and it's a meal that happened way before. It's a meal where people's eyes were opened, but not in a good way. You see, the first meal in the Bible actually comes all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve are in the garden, and they have been told by God not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what happens is Eve and Adam are tempted by the snake. And here's what we read in Genesis 3, 6, and 7. It says, The woman took some of the fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they saw that they were naked. You see, when Adam and Eve had that first meal that we hear about in the Bible, their eyes were opened, but not in a good way. It it led to shame. It led to sin. It led to death. But what Jesus is doing here in this meal of his resurrected life, the first meal of the new creation, is that he is saying that the curse that came in at the first meal has been undone. That the curse of sin and death is now being undone. It's this incredible news and It's at this meal, it's at this table that these two disciples have their eyes opened to understand that Jesus did have to suffer and die because the plan all along was to undo that curse. The plan all along was for Jesus to die and to offer the ransom price for our redemption. And now they see that his death wasn't a defeat, but it was his victory. The curse is undone. It's incredible news. And this is what they see at the table, his body given and his blood poured out for them. Yes, God's king, God's Messiah was slain, but he's now alive 
and he's brought in the new creation. That's what's going on here. There's so much good news here. And and by the way, folks, for you and I living, you know, 2,000 years later, Luke is not just conveying the message. He also gives us the way to live it out as the church. Have you noticed in this chapter the centrality of God's word and of the table? The centrality of the word and of that holy meal. Uh, Luke is anticipating the word and the sacrament of the Lord's table as the means by which the church encounters the risen Lord. The means by which God opens our eyes to see him for who he is. You see, we move from burdened to burning when we meet the risen Jesus and he opens our eyes. We can't set our own hearts ablaze. We can't renew ourselves. Only God can. It's the work of the risen Lord and of his spirit. So what does this mean for us? I mean, we can't open our own eyes, but are we totally passive in this whole deal? No, not at all. See, there are three actions that we see in this text that very practically open us up to this work of God. The first, uh, the three actions are seek, rise, gather. Seek, rise, gather. First, they seek. Look back a bit with me in verse 28. As they come near the village of Emmaus, Jesus does that funny thing where he kind of acts as if he's going to go on, like he's not really anticipating spending the night with them. But then it says that the disciples urged him strongly to stay with them. Did you notice that? And that word urged him strongly is a really intense word. It actually means to force or to compel. It's almost like they're not going to take no for an answer. It's like when I was a kid and I was sitting at the dinner table and my grandma would get up, go to the kitchen and bring out the tray of food and she would ask if you wanted seconds. And no matter how much I said no, it was I was getting seconds. I was compelled to eat the food. That's what's going on here. They compel Jesus to come with him. They, they force him. And they don't yet even know who he is. They don't yet have insight, but they know enough to know that they do not want to be away from him. They don't yet see who he is, but they know that they don't want to be without him. So they seek his presence and they invite him in. There's something for us to learn here. Do we seek Jesus in this way? Do we plead for him to be with us in this way? And you might say, well, isn't God omnipresent and isn't he always everywhere all the time? And I would say yes, but the scriptures always distinguish between the general omnipresence of God and the specific manifest presence of God, the hot spot of his presence among his people. And so this is inviting us to seek him. Yes, he is seeking us. Yes, he is always prior. But our response ought to be to seek the one who is already seeking us. 
And another objection you might have might be, well, I've already found God. I've already, you know, prayed the prayer. I've already taken Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I've been a Christian for decades, and I I don't need to seek someone I've already found. But if that's what you think, you're actually treating God as a possession to have, not as a person to love. To be a Christian is to be in relationship. And as we all know, relationships are a daily pursuit. I mean, the relationships that we don't pursue in our day-to-day lives, what happens to them? They dry up, they disappear, they fall off. That's how it is with relationships. I love the wisdom of A.W. Tozer. He says this, he says, to have found God and still to pursue God is the soul's paradox of love. To have found God and still to pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. So you found God incredible, or rather I would say he's found you. (laughs) So seek him. Seek the one who has sought you and is seeking to draw you nearer and deeper into his life each day. We can't open our own eyes, but we can seek him. We can urge him strongly to come in. Seek. The second action we see here is rise. Check out verse 33. Just after their eyes are opened and and they realize how their hearts have been set on fire because they've recognized Jesus, the first thing they do is they rise. Now, the New International Version says they returned at once to Jerusalem, but this translation almost misses it entirely. I like the ESV better. It says, and they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. They rose. It's the verb anistemi. It's where we get the English word resurrection or anastasis. And it's used four times in chapter 24. Check it out. The first time this verb is used is when the angels appear to the woman at the tomb and they remind them of Jesus' words. In chapter 24, verse 7, they say, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day rise again. The second time it happens is in chapter 24, verse 12. It says, But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. And then in our text, they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And then the last time is what we're going to consider next week, where uh, Jesus is risen and he's appearing to all of his disciples. And he tells them that it was written in Scripture that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Notice how two times it refers to Jesus' resurrection and two times it refers to what his disciples do in response to his resurrection. In other words, they rise as well. Our faith in Jesus causes us to rise with him in his resurrection. It causes us to live and act in light of the fact that he is alive and he is risen. And again, I imagine that after they rose, they ran. And what this tells us for us in our own life is that this rising suggests to us a next step of faith. That in light of what God is showing you, in light of how he is giving you insight and revealing himself to you, 
Is there a next step he's putting in front of you? Is there a way he is asking you to rise? To rise with him and follow him? To live in light of the resurrection of Jesus? Is Jesus inviting you to rise? Last action that we see in this text is to gather. They gather. Notice how with burning hearts, they run and they're like, the only thing we're going to do is we're going to gather together with the others in Jerusalem and we're going to tell them what we've seen. The faith awakened by the risen Jesus drives these disciples to gather with one another and confess together, it's true. The Lord has risen. I want to call this the fellowship of the burning heart. Jesus has revealed himself to them. He's ignited their faith and they gather. There is a fellowship of hearts that are burning with the incredible news that Jesus is alive and that Jesus is on the move. And it's so clear that he's on the move because even as these disciples come and tell them what they've seen, wow, these disciples here have seen Jesus too. He's appeared to Simon. He's been on the move. He is at work. One of my favorite things about the summer, which I'm hoping we get to enjoy in a few months, one of my favorite things about the summer is to sit out and enjoy a campfire. And as you linger around a campfire, you know that the flames die down and what you're left with is these burning embers, these glowing embers in the fire. And I've noticed that when you bring these embers together, they get hotter. When you bring them close to each other, the, the heat, there's heat transference between the glowing embers. And when you do that, you can even fan them back to flame. And if, if you separate those embers, what happens? Yeah, they cool. They die out. The gathering of the church is kind of like those embers. That when we come together and uh, share what God is doing in our lives, when, when we bring the warmth of our hearts together, that can, there can be transference. God can use that to galvanize us and to awaken us and to kindle a fire within us. So when we gather as the church, it's, it's this fellowship of the burning heart where we gather that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. So there, there's that third action step of gathering. Now, it is not lost on me that I'm talking about the importance of gathering exactly at a time where we can't. Where we're now in the midst of the strictest lockdown measures we've yet experienced in the last year. I mean, some of you are feeling just fed up. Some of you are feeling so fatigued and burdened by this pandemic and the restrictions. Some of us are just tired of looking at the screen. We have all kinds of burdens. This week I was praying about a burden that was weighing me down. Um, I was feeling hurt. And I was feeling wounded by something. And the temptation in those times when we feel that is to retreat, is to pull away from the fellowship of the burning heart, is to just go off on my own and grow in my bitterness. But God gave me a strong impression that he was saying this to me. He said, don't let your woundedness cause you to miss what I'm doing. 
Don't let your woundedness cause you to miss what I'm doing. And I wonder if this is a word for you too. And you might be able to substitute your own word. For me, it was feeling hurt. But for you, it might be something else. There are all kinds of burdens we're carrying, ways that we're weighed down. And, and sometimes we refuse to let those burdens go. And they cause us to miss what God is doing. So what's your burden? It might be hurt. It might be frustration. It might be anger. It might be self-pity. It might be fear. It might be exhaustion or apathy. And all of these things can prevent you from opening yourself to God with these three actions. They can prevent you from seeking Jesus. They can prevent you from rising and taking the step that he's asking you to, to take. And they can especially prevent you from gathering in the fellowship of the burning heart. Because here's the thing, in our pain, in our frustration, we so often flee. We so often avoid other people. It's so easy to just disconnect. And by the way, who isn't tired of Zoom gatherings? I mean, come on. It's so much easier for us to disengage and pull away, and I get that. But whatever it is, Jesus is standing at the door and he's knocking. And he invites you to lay that burden down, to give it to him, and to come back into the fellowship of the burning heart. So seek him. Rise with him. Gather around him. Don't allow the burdens that we carry prevent us from entering into what God is doing. I want to suggest to you a really practical way you can do that this week. Every week since the new year, we've been having a midweek prayer gathering from 7.30 to 8 on Wednesdays. It's half an hour. And we come and we gather. And let me tell you, it has been a fellowship of the burning heart. It's not that we all come to that meeting like super jazzed and excited and on fire. In fact, we come after a day of work. Some of us come like still holding our babies and we're trying to feed them and we're trying to participate in prayer. I mean, we're burdened with the events of the day and we're often tired and beat up, but we gather together and we kneel at the feet of the one whose heart is on fire. Because the heart that we gather around is the heart of God and his heart beats for us. His heart beats for the world, and it's his heart that ignites our hearts. He's the source. He is the fire. The scriptures say our God is a consuming fire, and his presence is that hot spot of energy and vitality, and we need him in our lives. So when we gather, and I invite you to come gather us for that midweek prayer gathering, or when you gather in any way possible, right now in this lockdown, and please do it. Come as you are. You don't need to pretend to have passion. You don't need to pretend like your heart is on fire, but trust in the one whose heart is on fire. Trust in the Lord to renew us and ignite us and, and cause us to rise with him in his resurrection power. The fellowship of the burning heart is, is what we're called to. And just one last point, as we're going to see in subsequent weeks, is that the fellowship of the burning heart has a missional outflow. 
that as God ignites our hearts, uh, others are drawn to his warmth. Isn't that true? That's what fire does. That's what a campfire does. It just gathers people around. And we're going to see in the coming weeks how these disciples, having seen Jesus and later to receive the gift of God's Holy Spirit, are going to just tell everyone about Jesus and share with them what they have seen and heard. That's what's brewing as we track with Luke and into the second volume of Luke's gospel, the book of Acts. But for us today, may God open our eyes to see Jesus and gain insight into who who he is. May we seek him. May we rise with him and may we gather together around him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are on the move. You're on the move even now. In the lockdown time, you're on the move even now during a pandemic in ways that we're not even aware. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come and show us anything in us that would hinder us from getting with what you are doing. Jesus, we bring our burdens to you. Thank you that you invite us to do so. That you invite us to lay our burdens at your feet and to take your yoke upon us, which is easy and light. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more on us as a church and ways to connect, please visit us online at firstalliancechurch.org.